With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. One for podcasting. The PSJs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Here's Governor uh, Kim, Re- Kim Reynolds. We had one new county, Cass County, for a total of 82 counties. We had 981 negative cases today for a total of 16,986 negative tests and a total of 18,696 tested. The State Hygienic Lab has 3,565 tests available. As of last evening, we have 142 hospitalized, 741 have recovered for a recovery rate of 43%. And I'm very sad to report that we have had two additional deaths, one elderly adult in Lynn County and one older adult in Muscatine for a total of 43 deaths. And our sincere condolences go out to the families of those who have passed. The number of Iowans who have successfully recovered from COVID-19 continues to increase daily, and later this week we'll share information about what Iowa's EpiCurve is telling us uh, about our onset of illness. These signs are encouraging, but they certainly do not—they are not a reason enough for us to let up on our mitigation efforts at this time. As we've been saying, we project that Iowa's peak will occur later this month, and until then, we anticipate our positive our number of positive cases, and unfortunately, our deaths will continue to rise as well. Uh, Long-term care facilities also continue to be a big concern. Despite significant mitigation measures taken early on, including restricting visitors and screening staff at all shifts, the virus has still been introduced into some facilities, resulting in devastating consequences. Staff and residents of long-term care facilities account for more than 10% of all of our positive COVID cases in Iowa, and 53% of all deaths are residents of long-term care facilities. This is why it has been so important that we prioritize testing for essential workers and vulnerable Iowans. The Department of Public Health is working now to deploy the Abbott Abbott rabbit testing machines to conduct surveillance testing among long-term care facilities, staff, and residents. When an essential worker tests positive for COVID-19, local public health officials are able to conduct contact tracing to determine any potential exposures that may have occurred and isolate those individuals as soon as possible to prevent further spread of the virus. And this is also why we continue to urge all Iowans to stay as, stay at home as much as possible, work from home if you can, practice social distancing at any time you're in public, don't gather in groups of more than 10 people, and isolate at home if you or any member of your household is sick. These important steps will significantly reduce the risk of further exposing exposing our essential workers and vulnerable Iowans to the virus. All Iowans must continue to do our part to protect our health and the health of others during this critical time.
I also want to provide a brief update on the Regional Medical um, Coordination Centers or the RMCCs after the weekend. So let's start with Regions 1 and 2 in Central Iowa. Yesterday in Region 1, which includes Polk County and the Des Moines Metro area, there were 38 COVID-19 patients hospitalized. Five new patients were um, was admitted in the last 24 hours. 14 were in ICUs and 11 were on ventilators. There were 1,365 inpatient beds available, 139 ICU beds, and 224 ventilators available for patient care. In Region 2, the north central area of the state, there, were, there was one COVID-19 patient hospitalized. No new patients were admitted in the last 24 hours. One is in an ICU and one was on a ventilator. There were 235 inpatient beds, six ICU beds, and 25 ventilators available for patient care. On the western side of the state yesterday, Region 3 reported two COVID-19 patients hospitalized, one new patient was admitted in the last 24 hours, one is in an ICU, and none were on ventilators. There are 540 inpatient beds, 44 ICU beds, and 59 ventilators available for patient care. In Region 4, there were two COVID-19 patients hospitalized. One new patient was admitted in the last 24 hours. One was in an ICU and none were on ventilators. There were 254 inpatient beds, 37 ICU beds, and 68 ventilators available for patient care. And finally, in eastern Iowa, as of yesterday, Region 5, where Johnson County and Scott County is located, we had 55 COVID-19 patients hospitalized. 12 new patients were admitted in the last 24 hours. 24 were in ICU and 15 were on ventilators. And there were 727 inpatient beds, 85 ICU beds, and 166 ventilators available for patient care. And in Region 6, where um, Lynn County is located, there were 44 COVID-19 uh, patients hospitalized. Five new patients were admitted in the last 24 hours. 29 were in ICUs. 14 were on ventilators and there were 1,225 inpatient beds, 69 ICU beds, and 133 ventilators available for patient care. Over the course of the last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the challenges of COVID-19 and what, how that presents um, challenges for the long-term care facilities. So in closing today, I want to take a moment to recognize the staff who work in the over 444 long-term care facilities across Iowa, especially those who, who are working in facilities that have been impacted by an outbreak. You're more than caregivers. You're heroes on the front line of this, of this crisis. And I know this situation is especially difficult for you. So thank you for showing up every day with compassion and integrity and for caring for your residents as you would your own family. Please be safe and stay well and know that we will continue to do our part to protect you and to work with you. And with that, we will open it up for questions. Are there any updates on the... Um one to ten scale for the various regions? Yep, there is. So um, in, we'll start with region six. It is an eight. RMCC region five is an eight. 
RMCC Region 2 is a 7. RMCC Region 1 is an 8. RMCC Region 3 is a 5. And RMCC Region 4 is a 6. And with some of those numbers declining, could you explain, like, So thanks for the question. I think you're specifically asking about um, Region 5. And so what's happened in Region 5 is we have, as we've continued to see case counts increase, the severity of the illness um, has also decreased. So the rate of hospitalization has gone down, which, so for that particular metric, um, that has gone from a three to a two uh, related to the hospitalization rate. So that's why you saw the decrease from a nine to an eight in that particular region today. Governor, can you talk about PPEs a little bit? Friday, there seemed to be a little difference in, the, in your tone stressing the severity of PPEs as they stand now versus where we could go. Several hours after you talked, we heard from the president say that PPEs are not a concern. So for people who are glued to their TVs right now, following both of you, what is your advice on which person they're supposed to believe? And can you specifically talk about what you all are doing to get more of these PPEs? Is it through the feds? Are you doing them through private? Vendors, what's the process? Yeah, well, as I said over and over and over, it is an all of the above. So we continue to order through the National Lab. We continue to order through DAS. We continue to encourage our hospitals and clinicians to order through their private vendors. Uh, we have also spent a great deal of time working out, to, reaching out to incredible businesses and individuals across the state that have really stepped up. The Department of Corrections is just the number of gowns that they've been able to make and to get to our long-term care facilities, especially their washable gowns, which is so important because the burn rate on the disposable gowns is so high in these long-term care facilities. And so to be able to provide them with surgical, I mean, they're good gowns, um, but they're washable so we can reuse them is really uh, important. And so, you know, from the very beginning, we have all said that the PPE has been one of the biggest concerns. And as we have our heroes on the front line that are working day in and day out to protect Iowans and especially our most vulnerable, we have an obligation to make sure that we're providing them sufficient PPE. And so the stockpiles just weren't where they needed to be. And, and every opportunity that we have um, on a, a call with the vice president or the president or the task force. It's not always, I mean, we have individual governors that step up and talk about their need, but we also, through the National Governors Association, the chair is Larry Hogan from Maryland, and I can't think of a call that I've been on that he hasn't indicated, you know, and stressed that we all working together, we know we need to dig down deep within our collective states, but we also need to just continue to work together and raise the awareness uh, of the the need for PPE. And so uh, we're going to continue. Uh, they've been very uh, responsive when we had an outbreak and I needed additional Abbott 
uh, testing machines. I called Administrator Gaynor. He actually, you know, got, I set up a call. He got on the call with me. I walked through what the need was. We needed some rapid testing. We were able to get additional swaps, machines, and additional tests. And that's really going to be at the same time I was talking about that. I talked about the number of long-term care facilities that we have in Iowa. And to be able to deploy these Abbott machines, we, once we get people trained with um, the testing supplies, that will really help us kind of, um, you know, get in front of it and start to um, you know, scope the exposure and help identify who's been exposed to get them home and really stop the spread. So, you know, we continue to reach out and let them know. And it's just, I think sometimes, again, we get hung up on semantics. But, but uh, you know, we've made them aware that we need, and every time that I've reached out, um, I have had really good, I have a really good response. All right. Um, to ask about the predicted peak, um, on April 7, according to AP, like that's when the um, state signed a contract with the University of Iowa. Can you help us understand how, like, what, what models are being used now for this peak and like, what that underlying information is? So these are conversations that have been ongoing for quite some time. So it was the IHME, which is the model that came out from Washington, and I think all of us would concur that there's been tremendous swings even within that model. So it is just a model based on various assumptions. I mean, we went from 128 potential deaths to 1,500 to 430 to 700. Uh, we said at the beginning that it didn't take in, into account a lot of the mitigation efforts that we've actually implemented in the state of Iowa. Um, you know, we've We've been targeted and we've done it on a case-by-case -case basis based on data and a lot of that wasn't taken into account. So the Iowa Department of Public Health and Sarah, I'll let you step in here too, uh, quite some time ago reached out to the University of Iowa who have been great partners through all of this to talk about how we can maybe take into account some of the mitigation efforts that we put in place and fold those into the modeling that was being done uh, with IHME. Um, but we we no, again, I just want to reiterate, it's a model, you know, and it's based on assumptions. And it's, as we've seen, I think, throughout this entire process, the modeling has been <laughs> wildly, uh, you know, off. And so we need to continue to do bottom line what Sarah and I say every day at this podium, and that is to take responsibility, practice individual responsibilities by staying home when you can, work from home when you can, you know, practice social distancing, limiting your trips to just essential services, uh, essential trips, and um, uh, really doing everything that we can to protect our most vulnerable and prevent overwhelming our health care system and uh, our, our health care workers. And so if we just continue to do that, we're going to see, uh, as they've said, I think the results that we're looking for. And most importantly, then we can stand at this podium and have a different conversation about how we start opening up this state instead of how we continue to close it down. Can we have, um, this might be for Sarah, yeah. but can you walk, because the governor is now I think today may have been the first time you've given us a true percentage for recovery rate. Um, Sarah, could you maybe take us through maybe a hypothetical person, sort of oh. start to finish how you determine when a person is recovered and what factors or metrics or follow-ups or whatever go into that? Yeah. 
I'm going to let Sarah do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah no, so I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. So um, every time we have a positive case, uh, local public health agencies, um, who, by the way, in addition to staff at long-term care facilities, our local public health agencies are doing just an incredible amount of work, and they're doing an incredible job to follow up on all of these positive cases when they do receive them. So local public health agencies will get an alert um, through our data collection system that lets them know that there's a positive case result for uh, for a resident of their county, um, and the local public health goes to work immediately, and they follow up with the individual. They ask about um, close household contacts. They ask about you know kind of work environment. You know, I, as you've heard me say, we do have concerns about the number of healthcare um, professionals that are um, turning up as positive cases in our state, and so certainly any exposures that as a healthcare uh, that would have been um, identified in a healthcare setting or a work setting. Um, the local public health agencies ask the, all of those sorts of questions, and then they would reach out um, either to the business, to the healthcare facility, those sorts of um, places, uh, high risk areas, to let them know that there was a potential exposure to a po uh, COVID positive patient. Um, from there, then, local public health continues to follow up with those patients. Um, and so they'll continue to touch, touch at, reach out, um, ask about symptoms. And somebody is considered recovered um, at least seven days after the onset of their symptoms. And then once they have been symptom-free, including fever-free, for at least a period of 72 hours or three days. And so once a positive um, case meets the, both of those metrics, then they would be considered recovered in the data that we're reporting. We're going to go to the phones. Um, Rachel at We Are Iowa, go ahead. Hi, Governor. Um, I have a few questions that are from viewers. Um, one, do we know where a lot of these new cases are being contracted? Is it mostly happening through familial relations, nursing homes, or are we starting to see community spread at places like grocery stores? And then we've also been getting some questions about why negative tests are being reported. So could you explain that and talk about if there are any false negatives likely to be happening? Well, we've been in substantial spreads for quite some time. So to Sarah's point, you should just assume that it's in your community no matter where you live because we crossed that level a long, long time ago. And that's actually some of the reasons that we took the steps that we did because we had moved from um, community spread into substantial spread statewide. Um, Sarah, do you want to answer that? So I would just add that, you know, we continue to learn more about this virus all of the time. One thing we do know is that it passes um, quickly and easily among members of households, people who are who live closely together. So in addition to, you know, household contacts, also within congregate living sites like long-term care facilities. And so those are the areas that we continue to be concerned about. Um, but as the governor mentioned, we do presume that we have substantial substantial community spread in all of our communities in Iowa, which why is it so important to stay home as much as you can, leave only for essentials. If you do have to go to the grocery store, send one member of the family, don't take the entire family because if one person picks it up and you all live at home together, it's highly likely that there will be a transmission um, within the household unit. So um, I think that um, we all need to presume that it's present everywhere we go. Yeah. Um, Rod, go ahead. 
Yeah, thank you, Governor. Um, you indicated last week you're putting together an economic recovery task force, which I assume will be looking at a possible phased-in reopening of the Iowa economy. Does it look like that process will begin on the west side of Iowa and eventually move east to the hot spot areas? And will you need a reliable system of antibody testing to make that happen? And if so, is such a system being developed and how prepared do you think the state is to make that transition to reopening the economy? Yeah, well, that's some of the uh, questions and uh, things that we'll walk through with the Economic Recovery Task Force. So we're going to originally bring just a group of my department heads together um, this week to start to identify what some of those questions look like, what some of those metrics look like, and then we'll broaden the scope out to bring some of the private sector on board to walk through um, the economic recovery. So it almost, Rod, all of the above will be things that we'll be considering, and every day they're making progress. You know, hopefully we continue to do more testing. Our goal is to continue to do even more testing, to be able to do the contact tracing, to be able to really figure out where those hot spots are and really um, focus in on what we can do to help mitigate the, um, the, the spread in those areas. And so, um, you know, I said, I've said all along that we potentially will be able to open up in different areas. But, you know, it's too early right now. As I said at the beginning of my remarks, why we feel good about the direction that we're heading, we're still not at the peak, and that's not anticipated until the end of the month. We will get through this. We will recover. I want to open up this state, you know, as soon as we can, but I want to do it in a responsible manner. We don't want to open it up just to have to shut things back down again. So we have to be very consistent uh, and, again, be relying on some data before we're able to do that. So we're looking at what all of those metrics look like. We're looking at what's available um, to, to be able to stand up some of the testing, some of the contact tracing, the being able to test for antibodies. They're moving forward with that. There's a lot of talk about that right now. So every day and every week we learn more, and um, so, so we'll continue. But, you know, we're going to do we're going to do a dual path at the same time we're really monitoring and working on mitigation efforts that we put in place throughout the state by Iowans doing the right thing and being responsible and staying home we're also going to start to look at what it looks like to begin to open back up because when we start to hit those metrics we want to be able to go but we want to be able to do it in a responsible manner Caroline Cummings go ahead Hi, Governor. Um, I want to go back to the um, contract first reported by the AP about um, Iowa's own model. Uh, the contract says that the model is intended for internal use only and that UI would not be allowed to release any information without Dr. Padati or the uh, state uh, medical director's approval. So I'm wondering what can the public reasonably expect to learn and see about any state modeling and or, or are you intending to keep all of that information uh, private? Well, Caroline, I think you know the answer to that question. We've been very transparent throughout this entire process, and we know that it's important to keep Iowans informed and up-to-date on what we're doing and what we're basing um, our decisions on. And so uh, we'll work through that. We will release it at some point. Um, but, you know, we're every day, again, I want to go back to this is a, a model, and models are only as good as the assumptions that we feed into them. It didn't take into account a lot of the mitigation efforts that we have put in place. 
The University of Iowa has been a phenomenal partner throughout all of this. Uh, we look forward to taking a look at what some of those recommendations are, as well as all of the other things that I just uh, listed when I was answering Rod's question about additional things that we'll look at as we move through um, this, this process. But uh, I appreciate their partnership. I appreciate them working with us. And again, it's a model. And I don't think anybody should ever lose sight of that. You're going to be, we're going to have some new information. I'm going to tease it out a little bit here for Iowans tomorrow uh, with a new website. So Sarah and I will be back tomorrow talking about that, which will provide Iowans with some additional information as well. So we are always looking for ways that we can um, provide Iowans with the information that they expect. Thank you for that question. Todd with KCCI, go ahead. Good morning, Governor. You had mentioned last week that we'd be getting close maybe this week to talk about schools going back. Yeah. Uh, have you got a timetable on that? Yeah, Is I told you. this week, do you think? Yeah, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Again, thank you for that question. There's asking about schools and when they can potentially open up. I had told them that in fairness to them, I would try to give them a two-week notice, which would actually be at the end of this week. And so we'll be watching the data and sitting down with the team, the Department of Public Health, and taking a look at what that looks like moving forward. But in fairness, so that they can make decisions, I'd like to be able to give them some indication by the end of um, this week. We're going to go to Aaron at Lee News. Thank you, Governor. I, I uh, just was wondering the uh, Public Health Department's guidance uh, to businesses um, uh, to self-report outbreaks says that the, the business names will not be shared publicly. I'm, I'm just wondering why that um, information would not uh, be public so Iowans can know where these outbreaks are happening. It will be um, thank you for that question. I mean, uh, so our medical director makes determinations about, and, and we do this all the time for all sorts of disease outbreak investigations. At the point in time where we think that it becomes necessary to protect the public's health, um, that is the trigger for us to name um, a particular business or a particular entity. And so we'll continue to look at that as we move forward. Um, you know, at this particular point in time, we haven't had any businesses that have reported to us where we feel like to protect the public's health, um, that we need to name those businesses publicly. But in the event that we get there, um, we certainly will do that. Um, Clark Hoffman, Capital Dispatch. Uh, thank you, Governor. Well, I'm wondering, uh, going off of that last question, if you can at least uh, confirm how many cases work for grocery stores or food suppliers without naming the individual businesses. And then separately, um, I don't, it, it, can you talk about the steps Iowa has taken to limit the use of temporary or agency employees in long-term care facilities? Because some of these workers under normal circumstances might work in two or three care right. facilities a week. Right. Do you want to talk about that, Sarah, what you're doing to work with long-term care? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'll start with the long-term care question. Um, that is one of the things that we talk to long-term care facilities about when they have identified cases, um, is that we want we really want to make sure that to the extent possible that employees are not moving between um, similar settings uh, when they're taking care of patients. We certainly want to prevent the spread of, of, of the virus within long-term care facilities. It's been a priority of ours for weeks. It continues to be a priority, and so um, we continue 
continue to ask those questions of facilities, and we have daily phone calls um, with facilities where outbreaks have been identified, and those are the, some of the things that we are tracking. I was just looking to see if I had, um, Clark, the answer to your first question about the number of people that work in grocery stores or the percent of all positive cases that work in grocery stores. I don't. I have a 3% statistic for um, food service, but other than that, I don't have specific related to grocery stores or other sorts of um, establishments. Uh, that will bring our coverage of uh, Kim Reynolds' press conference to the end for the day. We'll do it every day as long as she's speaking at 11 o'clock. We will carry uh, the press conference here on 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM. Right now, KXNO and iHeartRadio would like to help you with your bills. Text the keyword cash to 200-200 right now. Your chance to win $1,000 cash. That's cash to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Scott Dockerman from The Athletic joins the program next. Miller and Condon till noon. Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Ken Miller, Trent Condon. Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Kind of music, Trent Condon. Welcome back, Miller and Condon. Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Excuse me, I bang my head on the mic. <laughs> this is doc music. I too. know who you're playing. Oh, for. yes. He loves his 80s butt rock. Indeed. Before we get to Scott Dockerman, NCMIC makes it possible for Trent and I to do restaurant radio twice a week. Tomorrow, uh, we have, uh, we've, we're a little light tomorrow, to be perfectly honest yeah. with you. Uh, we are looking for some restaurants, some area restaurants to join the program tomorrow. Uh, we have you on. We give you two or three minutes to tell our audience what you're doing at your restaurant. If you own the restaurant, if you work at it, if you manage it, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We can slot you in tomorrow. Restaurant Radio, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1020 until 11 o'clock. Simply reach out to me, Ken Miller Show at gmail.com. Or if you're on Facebook, find Trent Condon on Facebook and give him your information. We will get back to you and give you your time slot. No charge for this. No catch. No charge. Restaurant Radio brought to us by NCMIC. Scott Dockerman joins the program. He is with The Athletic. Doc, Trent, and Ken, thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you, Scott Dockerman. How are you? You know what? Uh, it's been great. Had a wonderful Easter with the family, and uh, now looking forward to another work week. I saw some of the photos of you and the family. You're out in the woods. You didn't pick up any ticks, did you? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, it was early in the morning, so I think the ticks were still sleeping. Gotcha. So it, was a, it was a good. It was a good time. Yeah, that's great. Glad uh, glad you're able to do that with your two kids and your wife. Well, Doc, uh, that hasn't prevented you from uh, doing your athletic duties. A really good piece that's getting a lot. A lot of accolades that was published uh, at the Athletic earlier today. Of course, on uh, I want to get the title right. I've got it in front of me here. How Kirk Ferentz? What's well, a long piece? I'm having to scroll all the way to the top of my iPad. How Kirk Ferentz has turned Iowa into an unlikely NFL developmental factory. You know, Doc, when you think about it, and when you go back and you look at the data, how many guys they've sent in the league, it really has turned into a developmental factory. It sure has. I mean, you know, when I, I took a really strong look at the last 10 drafts, Ohio State leads the way in the Big Ten, no doubt about it. But but Penn State's second with 38, and then Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin all have 37. 
selections. Uh, but then you look at like their recruiting rankings and it's like, you know, Iowa's average over that 10 year period was 44th. Everybody else was above them. Wisconsin was fairly close, but, but Iowa sends so many players to the NFL, both in every round. Uh, and some of the more interesting, you know, opportunities here is, you know, like they have 31 people on, on rosters right now. Currently they're going to have another between five and well, probably more like seven and 10 to 10 at the end of the month from after uh, the draft. And, and you're going to see a couple more get signed who weren't, uh, who were still remain undra- uh, unsigned free agents in regular NFL. So you've just, it, it's been really fascinating to see how this has worked out for Kirk Ferentz. And, and then some of the comments that uh, Bill Polian had uh, really shed light on what NFL uh, uh, evaluators think of the Hawkeyes. Doc, on the other side of the equation, people will look at it and say, boy, they put this many NFL people, players in the NFL. Maybe there should be even more success that goes along with it. There's been 10 win seasons. There's been the like, but they haven't had a Big Ten championship since 2004. They've only had one appearance in the Big Ten championship game. The blowback from the other side, I'm sure you've heard it plenty of times, Doc. Why aren't there more wins that come with the talent that's inside this program? Well, you know, I mean, there, there are a couple of ways to look at that. One, you know, Iowa over the last five years with 47 wins is tied for ninth among Power Power 5 conferences. I mean, they're tied with Michigan, Notre Dame, Washington. That's pretty rare company. I mean, you know, what are you really expected out of this program? And you know, when you're averaging, you know, four to five draft picks, a lot of them are first on their offensive line. A lot of them are defensive line. They are not accumulating the same level of talent that you are at some of those other uh, uh, schools. So it's really kind of almost unfair to expect them to be a championship caliber team when you have an Ohio State in there. And not, you know, a lot of teams are beating Ohio State. Or, you know, now Wisconsin's a fair argument. Um, but, you know, I think where the detriment lies with Iowa when it comes to developing is, uh, you know, since 2003, they've only put one running back in the draft, only one wide receiver in the draft, and only two quarterbacks. So that's where the detriment lies, is that they can match up along the line of scrimmage with anybody, probably in the country, year in and year out. Uh, they have a lot of great defensive backs. However, getting those skill position players to, that make plays in critical situations is something that's been, um, you know, lacking a little bit. You know, you don't, you only have a Sean Green, you only have a Marvin McNutt. You don't have mm-hmm. uh, the consistency there at those positions, which I think has been why they've had some really good seasons. And I would argue 2015, 12 wins, any other year. They were the only team to go undefeated in the regular season in the Big Ten. Mm. So I think it's a little bit of an unfair comparison between 2004 and 2015. Uh, but that said, you get a couple more playmakers at quarterback and on the receivers and in the backfield, and you have a chance to, to go a little bit farther. Everybody develops at their own pace, Doc. Who's the former Hawkeye that you know you saw early in his career when he first got the opportunity – Probably not as not as a true freshman, or maybe probably not even as a redshirt freshman. But what former player has gone the furthest that you know? You're like, boy, I didn't see that coming. Who's that player that you didn't see coming? There's a few, you know, that really stand out for me. One guy that's really under the radar was Adam Geddes. He put together an eight year uh, eight year run in the NFL before retiring, and uh, you know he was a nice player. I thought at, at Iowa, a fifth rounder. Pretty good speed, kind of small, but I didn't really think much that he was going to be more than a couple of years. And, you know, to go eight years is, is pretty outstanding. And, 
you know, Marshall Yonda, you know, that's an easy example. I mean, a third rounder, uh, you know, everybody kind of thought he would be a good player, certainly not a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, but, you know, Adrian Claiborne has sustained a lot of injuries. And he was a first rounder when he came out. He's bounced around a little bit, but he's made a nice career. So there's really been a lot of players that have fit that. You know, and one player I identified, it was a free agent. Um, and it also goes to show you that even guys who get those opportunities, you know, stick, uh, you know, as undrafted free agents is James Ferentz. And if his last name was something different, I think he'd make one of the great stories in, in mm. Iowa history because he didn't get signed right away. He had to wait a year, uh, just even have the opportunity to make a roster. And here he was. He made his, started his first game last year uh, at age 30. He had two starts. He said, you know, and, and to, his last year at Iowa was 2012. So he's been able to stick. He's won two Super Bowls. He's reached another one. I think his career has been really one that, that is really undervalued. That's a fair point. Yes. Really you, good one. You mentioned Polian, of course, a, a couple of heavyweights ended up in Indianapolis on their way to the Super Bowl. Among them, Bob Sanders. And I've been going through, we've been talking about some past seasons when I was looking back at those 01, 02, 03 teams and, and just his impact on those squads, how good he was. And at the NFL level, to think a guy five foot eight can play defensive back and play it at that level, be Defensive Player of the Year in the league. And the story of how Iowa found him, just absolutely incredible. Sometimes those connections go a long way in getting the right guys to your campus. Talked to Kirk extensively about him, um, and I haven't written it yet. But just, uh, you know, his connections back there through Joe Moore was, hey, if nothing else, he's going to be a great special teamer. Uh, you might not ask him to backpedal. <laughs> but you, you, and, and they really... Early on, they really tried to protect him in coverage. Uh, they kept yeah. him just uh, short, you know, route. That's great. Stay, have everything stay in front of you because if, otherwise, if you're covering a deep third, you're, you're in big trouble. But, but really, uh, you know, what Polian said, you know, goes a long way when he said, you know, he said it was tragic that he was almost too explosive for his own body. He had the same type of punch as a Lawrence Taylor and Dick Buckus. And he said that uh, had he played longer, he certainly would have been a candidate for Canton. He's that good, and uh, just diffused praise upon Bob Sanders and and what he did in that '06 playoffs is really one of the great feats, uh, you know, in NFL history for a single player because he changed everything. That defense was dreadful. It was Swiss cheese against the run. It was the worst in the league, by far the worst in the league. Thirty second, and he comes in in the playoffs. I mean, during the regular season. They allowed 100 yards rushing in every single playoff game, at every single game. He comes in after only playing in four games, and they allow less than 100 in each of the three AFC playoff games to get him to the Super Bowl. And he had a major, major impact to all three of them. Uh, you know, that's something that, you know, Bill Bullion said when, they, when he goes back there, he gets as loud of an ovation as even Peyton Manning does. That's how much the, the people there love him. And his impact at Iowa is immeasurable. He's the most impactful player in Iowa under Kirk Ferentz, no doubt about it. Scott Dockerman from The Athletic. Well, Doc, earlier this past week you had an opportunity to be a part of the Gary Barta Zoom uh, press conference, if you will. Uh, one or two of your takeaways from that, Doc, and then can you see a scenario where you're covering football at Kinnick Stadium in January? that would be a bad episode for everybody. I do think, uh, you know, one is that, uh, you know, Iowa State got out a little bit in front of everything by, you know, agreeing to go to, to pay cuts right away when, I, when Jamie Pollard brought that up. And then, um, and then 
really almost miraculous for the coaches to decide to forego their bonus. That's a rare gift that Jamie has on that. Gary is doing it a little bit differently, uh, that they've got enough in reserve to cover through the end of the fiscal year. But after that, you're going to see pay cuts at Iowa. You're going to see different changes. And, uh, you know, they have a little bit, they have a few more employees. They spend a little bit more. They're going to have to make some changes there. I don't know how and what. I don't know what that means for somebody like, uh, you know, a Kirk Ferentz or, you know, Fran McCaffrey or other people. Would they be as willing as a Matt Campbell to take a pay cut or forego bonuses or, or push them off to the future or what have you? That's, that's going to be fascinating to see those discussions at Iowa because you can't just start trimming some of the SID salaries or the photographer salaries and other people there, you know, how are they going to make that work? I don't know. I mean, you know, will a sport be susceptible, you know, men's gymnastics or something, you know, so I think that's part of it. And then, you know, I, I think it's intriguing. It's all speculative, you know, as to what's going to happen in the future with football. Um, they need it. Every school needs it because it pays for every single sport on campus, except for men's basketball. And that pays for itself. So every school needs it. How are they going to have it? Are they going to have fans or not? They're working through all these different models. I, I mean, I, I I remain optimistic that it'll go on off unhitched. We're still in the middle of April, but you never know. And does that mean that they trim the season? Do they just play divisional games? Do they start in mid-October and maybe end in mid-December? I think that's probably more likely. And then the bowl game aspect. <laughs> Are there going to be any bowl right. games? Can they be? You know, so there's so much to ask and so much we don't know right now. But I do. I, I think it's probably naive. You know, I've been, you know, hopeful that they're going to have games throughout the season. I think it's naive to think that way. So I'm contradicting myself here a little bit. But um, I do. I, I think it's probably optimistic to think that we're going to have a season even in October. Scott Dockerman joining us from the Athletic. Doc, you were covering the team that's in our spotlight today as we look back at great teams in our state history today. We didn't go back too far, back to 2015. The Iowa football team, 12-0 and during the regular season, Big Ten Championship game appearance and Rose Bowl. Uh, we only had one highlight from that one. But, Doc, as you look back at 2015, not the most talented of Iowa teams, but certainly the best regular season. A memory or two for you from 2015. team I've ever covered because as you mentioned their talent level wasn't all there I mean they had some great players but they were still younger uh you know Bethard was a junior Kittle uh Juice, Josie Jewell was a sophomore players like Desmond King you know they were all really good players but they were younger but they were so gritty and tough and through the course of the year every team like them tends to lose a game and they never did you know whether it was the Minnesota game or Indiana you know, now they, they didn't play the most difficult schedule in the uh, in the Big Ten, but you know what, they got through it. And I think, you know, the, the, some of the things that stood out for me was the way C.J. Beathard just guided the team to, to victory, you know, at Iowa State, the way that they all held hands and locked hands to go get trophies because they didn't win any the, the year before. Um, you know, the, the celebration against uh, Purdue, you know, and, and even go, before that game, one of the more outstanding memories I have is, when all the students rushed to the field because there was eight inches of snow on all their seats <laughs> and just how they all went, oh, my, <laughs> they looked at them. And then they played Let It Snow by, uh, you know, on, over the loudspeaker, and they all sang it in unison. I mean, it was just – you could tell that team was special from a character standpoint, uh, and they made it work for them. And that, that game against Michigan State was one of the most hard, 
hard-hitting games I've ever experienced and, and certainly uh, one of the more devastating results. And I, I, I really think it's a shame the comments that Colin Coward had all year. It diminished a great season, and it just will not get the due nationally for what it accomplished. And I, I think that's really unfortunate. Same thing with the Rose Bowl. It, it, you know, it happened, but I think people really need to remember what it, what it accomplished because it was certainly a, as gutty of a year as I've ever seen. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, speaking of gutty, uh, and I don't know how you quantify this, Doc, but for me, I, I so, so much respect for C.J. Beathard's career uh, just because of his toughness. I mean, he took some shots. As all quarterbacks do, I get it, but there were some shots that should have knocked him out and maybe actually – should have been taken out of football games, and maybe in today's game he would have. But boy, oh boy, Beathard was a tough sob. He sure was. I mean, in that Pittsburgh game, I think he gets you know speared in the face mask, you know, and loses the ball, and then it goes for a touchdown against him. And yet, you know, he had the wherewithal late in the game to to take off on like a draw and then hit the turf, call a timeout with two seconds left give Marshall Kane that, that opportunity. Uh, there were four or five plays in the Iowa State game mm-hmm. that I'm like, okay, this guy is different than what we've seen at this position because, you know, the, the run out of the end zone, uh, the, the hard pass he threw to, to Von Smith for a touchdown, and just the way he elevated that team and his toughness. That Northwestern game, he shouldn't have played. I mean, his groin muscle was bad enough that it needed surgery a few months later, mm-hmm. and they were without their starting two tackles, yet here they were. That uh, you know they're just, you know that he was they're able to produce that forty to ten win. It was just it wasn't miraculous because miraculous seems that there's it's like the big play at the end of the um, cap one bowl. This was pure toughness guts, and I, again I I hope when people look back this year they take it in its totality, not just the way it ended because. You know, C.J. Beathard was an all-timer based on how he performed. You know, there there will always be that stain of what happened in the Rose Bowl with this team. It's unfortunate. I went back and watched a lot of that as we were uh, getting ready for today's show, looking back at the team. And what went wrong? I mean, Christian McCaffrey was nuts, yes, but it wasn't just that. There were a couple of moments where they could have slowed the tide, it felt like, as I was watching it again. But in your mind, as you look back upon it, Doc, how did it get that bad in the first half? A lot of it, I think, had to do with uh, with flooding. I mean, of all the drop things, that that was that was something that really impacted them from the very beginning. That uh, their footing was not good, and and I talked to the equipment manager, Greg Morris, about it. And he said we wore the same cleats that they did, so it's not. I don't know. He didn't really quite get it either. But that very first play, that seventy-five yarder, you look and you see. I think it was Jordan Lomax and. Josie Jewell both slip, and it just goes, you know, 75 yards. And then you look at the punt return, yeah. same deal, where three or four players slip on their feet and fall down. And I don't know if they were used to the cleats or what, but it just didn't work on that on that turf. And that put it behind quite a bit. I, I was a little surprised they couldn't score a little more. But, you know, you throw a pick six in the first half. It was just – it snowballed on them so quickly. I'm not suggesting that they would have won. I picked them to lose. I thought they were going to lose, and they did. But I didn't think that they would get run on the way they did. And it just – it's really unfortunate because it leaves a stain on an otherwise um, elite season in Iowa history. So I, I think it was – you know, the, those big plays, the punt return, the 75-yarder, the pick six, all happened so fast that it was just really hard for Iowa to recover. Scott Dockerman from The Athletic, great piece on the football, the NFL 
uh, developmental system and, uh, over there in Iowa City. It really is. There's so many of them. There'll be, as, as you mentioned, Doc, a whole bunch more next week. We'll get into that next week, Doc, the, the draft, etc. with you. Look forward to doing that. Thank you for your contribution. As always, Scott Dockerman, appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful day, guys. Yeah, you do the same. Scott Dockerman from The Athletic. Gar Foreman is out with the Bulls. He's been fired. It is mm-hmm. over. The Gar Foreman era has come to an end. Not a surprise. No, well... In some respects, because he kept the job for so dang long. Well, it's true. <laughs> What's it going to take? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's uh, they're bringing in their own guy, new guys, and when that happens, they want to bring in their team. So one uh, other thing, we were talking earlier last hour. We talked with Matt Postens from Harlan mm-hmm. College Sports on the Big Twelve. We were talking about Gundy. Did you see over the weekend that Gundy talked back his uh, his talk a little bit about? Yeah, we should be back and running here by May. And yeah, get the his apology you're referring yeah. to those people who were offended. Yes. Yeah, that's not an apology. It's not an apology. To those of you who are offended, no. It just... You made it worse. Dig your hole deeper. Why do people continue... I, I don't get it. Quit while you're behind, Coach Gundy. Yes. Uh, we, uh, tomorrow we'll do restaurant radio again. Uh, Ken Miller Show at gmail.com. If your restaurant wants to be a part of it, we have room for you. If we run out of room, we'll schedule for you for on, th- uh, on Thursday. We do it twice weekly from about 1020 till 11 o'clock. Zuba Mahente will be part of the program, uh, tomorrow as well as we inch our way to the draft next Sunday. We've got, is it next? Uh, yeah, the last dance debuts next Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, Sunday nights, as bad as TV as you're going to find, you're going to get real good for the next five weeks. So you're going to be plopped down in front of that one. Oh, my. Should we have Bobby Hansen on? I think we, I know That's, he wasn't part of the last dance. Right. But he was there for the first couple of dances. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and he's told some stories before just, uh-huh. and just, I mean, just being around those guys, you know, and what it was like to travel with that team. It wasn't as cuckoo as it got at the end, but yeah, we should probably reach out to. That'd be great. Bobby Hansen, get him on Friday. Just um, again, he was with him for God's sakes. Yeah, I can't wait, Trent. And then the draft the following week, so a little bit of sports coming into focus here, right? We're finally. I'm optimistic. You said uh, earlier before we started the show. I was optimistic last week, and it's starting reality starting to set teetering in, teetering back the other yeah. way. Yeah, there's something. nothing we can do. That's true. There's nothing we can do. Uh, I just I just don't want to start and have to stop. You know what I mean? Right. I think that yeah. just sets it back. But we shall see. Those are, those decisions are made way above my pay grade, thankfully. All right, Murph and Andy are going to be here at 2. The Fanatics at 4. Uh, morning Rush starts it all again at 6. Again, Restaurant Radio. Be a part of it. It's free. Come on on. Tell your story. Show at gmail.com. Where you can find Trent Condon on Facebook. Thanks for being here. We're Miller and Condon, weekdays, 10 to noon. Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM.